You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Bible college that I went to placed a premium on Christian service. They required all of the students, no matter what level of education we were at or what year we were studying, they required every student to be participating actively, constantly, in some form of Christian service. My first year at Bible college, they slotted me in with Awana. I hated kids, so that was a perfect fit. I was in Awana. Second year, I had something else that I did. Third year was... I was in charge of a ministry team whose responsibility it was to oversee large outreach events. And so I had about eight or ten students that were with me, and I was the leader of this ministry team, and we did a lot of big special functions. We went to an Indian reservation, and we put on an evangelistic crusade at an Indian reservation, did children's ministry there, and worked with some of the natives. Another thing we did was to go into a street mission and uh, serve food to some of the men and women who came into the mission, and then we would... Uh, do like an evangelistic service after that to uh, preach Christ and, and go and talk amongst them. We went out on the streets and passed out tracts. One particular event that we were involved in was a large outreach event to teenagers in the city of Regina, which was about two and a half hours from the school. And we drove to the city and we were doing this outreach event in cooperation with what I think was the Christian, the local Christian Businessmen's Association. And they had done most of the preparation for this. They rented this large banquet hall and, and then they had had all these teenagers from all over the, the uh, city come to the banquet hall for this evangelistic crusade. They had special music. They had a guest speaker. I wasn't it. But when I showed up with our ministry team, our responsibility was to do follow up and, and deal with the kids who came forward after the altar call, which I now, I don't do altar calls, but back then we did. They did. Um, our ministry team didn't, but that was our responsibility to follow up with all of these different people. And so I showed up and I walked into the banquet hall and, I, and people were starting to kind of collect there, some of the teenagers, and I noticed up at the, up at the front, and I'll use this sort of as a, as a diagram and illustration, up at the front they had this long table, something that you would expect to see at a Christian businessman's fellowship. And it was the head table. And in the middle of this string of tables was a podium where the speaker was going to speak. And they had a band off to the side that was going to be doing the special music. And the leader of the Christian Businessmen's Association informed me that my responsibility was basically to sit at the head table and face all of the teens as they had this evangelistic and youth rally. And as representing Miller College of the Bible, I was to sit at the table. So I did, and the students who came there with me sort of mingled out into the crowd, and we started the proceedings and I got to sit up front and face about 400, 500 teenagers and people who were looking at us and they did the music and as the music started um, I noticed some people started raising their hands which I don't have a problem with and swaying back and forth which I'm a little bit more uncomfortable with and after a little bit I noticed uh, one of them started to break out in what sounded like babble to me. I was familiar with this because I had some experiences prior to going there. And this person broke out in these, what they call tongues, uh, speaking the, the repetitive syllables. Um, 
the same sound over and over again, this verbatim, incoherent speech. And I listened to this, and then I noticed that it was followed not by a second person and a third person, as Paul would instruct in 1 Corinthians 14, but by 20 or 30 people who all started doing it at the same time, loudly speaking these different tongues. And I noticed that there were no translators in the audience, and I started to get kind of uncomfortable. I had no idea that this is what we had stepped into, this conservative Bible college where you never saw any of this stuff going on on campus. And we had all come here, and I was kind of looking at the guys that I came with, and I didn't know really how to deal with this, but I thought, well, this is obviously what most of these people have grown up with. They're used to this. I disagree with it. I'm uncomfortable with it. But I just kind of sat back and let it let it happen. After the service, after the ceremony, the guy who was the head of it, well, they had a speaker come up. He gave the gospel, and some kids came forward, and then we did follow-up. And as we were getting ready to leave, I approached the man who was, had been in charge of this whole event and uh, shook his hand. I said, I think it was really well. The gospel was clearly presented. And uh, I think that these kids, if we can get them plugged into some good churches and, and get some discipleship going, this will be really good. And he just looked at me and he put his hands together and he said, yep, all we need to do now is get these kids speaking in tongues and everything will be just fine. And I'll tell you what, man, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I wanted to just go through the roof because I had had just about enough of it. Now, I've calmed down a little bit since then. I'm still in the process of calming down from that event. I've calmed down considerably, and I'm a lot more gracious than I used to be on that subject. But I do have strong feelings about that subject. The strong feelings that I have are not based upon any emotion that I feel. They're not based upon any vendetta or vengeance or personal discomfort with the idea of speaking in tongues, I think that my strong convictions are based upon Scripture. Now, what I witnessed that night, was it the New Testament gift of tongues? Some people would say yes. Others say no. And what we're here to address this morning is, was it or wasn't it? Because it is characteristic of what happens in charismatic churches all across the country every day, and even right now while I speak in this city. It's characteristic. And it's a very divisive subject, tongues is. If not the most divisive subject among Christians to address. You can talk about divorce and remarriage. You can talk about election. You can talk about nearly any subject that typically is divisive amongst Christians. But when you start addressing the modern-day use of the gift of tongues, you are in for a firestorm. Now, it's not divisive in this context because this church has taught the same thing for 25 years. The leadership of this church has always been and is in unanimous agreement as to what the Scriptures teach concerning tongues. The leadership of this church shares the opinions of the elders of the church. It's not really an issue amongst us. Ten years ago, I taught on the subject of tongues in an adult Sunday school class. And I was blown away by the amount of vehement hatred that it was expressed to me by those who were outside of our church who just heard that I was teaching the class and had never heard anything that I taught, never got a tape, never attended a single Sunday school. But I received letters in the mail calling me blasphemous, a hypocrite, 
I received uh, a prophecy saying God was going to rid the world, the entire country, the United States, of all evil. And the implication was that I was amongst those targets and that God was going to do that on a certain day. I received packages in the mail with books on the Holy Spirit that were supposed to correct my error. I received uh, answering machine messages calling me a blasphemer and a hypocrite and one who stood under the judgment of God. I even was fortunate enough to pick up the phone on a Sunday afternoon and talk with a lady in a, with a, for an hour in a not-so-pleasant conversation over what I had been teaching in adult Sunday school class. All of that because I dared to analyze the modern tongues movement in the light of Scripture. Now that kind of vehement, vitriolic response is not across-the-board characteristic of all charismatics. You can't paint them all with the same broad brush. But it is characteristic amongst the Word of Faith movement, amongst extreme charismatics, amongst the Vineyard movement, and amongst the Third Wave movement and the Toronto Blessing movement. There seems to be this attitude amongst charismatics that you dare not analyze, criticize, critique, or examine them in the least. Or you're accused of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, being a hypocrite, working against God, and on and on it goes. I want to go on record with a couple of things before we start this. First of all, I want everybody to know I have charismatic friends. I have friends who speak in tongues, or what the modern day tongues movement. They believe that it is the gift that the Spirit continues to give. They believe that it is their own prayer language. They believe that they have that gift and they use it either in the assembly or in their prayer closet. And they believe that they have that. They are my friends. I love them. I respect them. I pray with them. The fact that they believe that does not mean that I cannot have any fellowship with them. I believe that they're wrong. And we have discussed the appropriate biblical text back and forth to sharpen each other. And we walk away disagreeing on the subject. Me feeling passionately the way I do. Them feeling passionately the way they do. But they are my brothers in Christ and I love them dearly. Brothers and sisters in Christ. But I also want to go on record as saying that I believe that they're wrong. And you're going to see that this morning. And I don't think that that's an arrogant statement because either tongues continue today or tongues have ceased. One of the two. They can't both be right, can they? Because they're mutually exclusive. So somebody is right and somebody is wrong. Now, we're going to fall into or we're going to approach the possibility of falling into two different pitfalls discussing the subject of tongues. And they are these. The first is to allow our experience to dictate our doctrine. We don't do that. We don't say, I have experienced this, or I have done this, or I have been someplace where somebody did this, or somebody told me that a missionary in a foreign field did such and such, and therefore I believe this. We don't do that. We allow the Word of God to dictate our belief system, our practice, and our thinking, and our theology, and doctrine on a particular subject. We do not allow our experience to dictate those things. So to to put it real succinctly and to put it real simply but also real forcefully, I don't care what you have experienced and I don't care what you know has been experienced by somebody else. That is irrelevant to the discussion. In everything, it's irrelevant to the discussion. doesn't matter what your feelings are, my feelings, your experiences, or my experiences. There's only one thing that counts and that's what Scripture reveals about the subject. The second pitfall is this. It's the emotional, the emotional element to discussing tongues. 
I would be willing to bet that nearly everybody, if not everybody sitting here this morning, knows somebody who speaks in tongues. Knows somebody who thinks they have the New Testament gift of tongues. I'd be willing to bet that. Because it's so widespread. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. It may be your brothers and your sisters. It may be your mom and dad. It may be your in-laws, some good friends at work. Whatever it is, I'm just asking you to do this. Lay aside all of the emotion and don't fall into the trap of thinking that an analysis of tongues constitutes a personal attack on the people who claim to speak in tongues. Can we just go that far? Can we just say that it's okay for us to analyze the doctrine and to analyze the practice without getting caught up in the emotional, vitriolic, passionate response that so often comes with it and just to analyze it biblically? and to lay aside all of the emotion. I'm saying all of this up front because I'm trying to avoid hate mail for the next three months from people who have heard the tape or have been here or told somebody who wasn't here what I'm saying today. So having said all of that, we're going to spend the next two Sundays looking at tongues. Today we're going to cover what is the nature of tongues in the New Testament. That's the first question. The second question, what was the purpose of tongues in the New Testament? Now if we can answer those two questions, what was the nature of tongues? And what was the purpose of tongues? We're going to go a long way toward answering most of your questions before we even get done with what we're doing today. Next week, we're going to address a bunch of other little questions that are sort of related to that and questions that are raised out of answering these two questions. And if you have a question on this subject that you think I might not answer next week, then I would encourage you to write it down, hand it to me. Don't give it to me anonymously. Just send it to me or ask me or something if there's something raised that is really on your heart. And we'll deal with that from Scripture next week. From Acts chapter 2, let's begin where we left off last week. What is the nature of the New Testament gift of tongues? What was it? What did it sound like? What characterized it? Acts chapter 2, you know the the story already, the setting, because we went through this last week. The apostles are gathered in Jerusalem. Jesus has ascended. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. It's the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. They are together probably in the temple or somewhere near the temple in a room. And suddenly, without expecting it, without praying for it, without seeking it, they hear this loud noise like a violent rushing wind. And then they see this physical phenomenon that they see, the the tongues of fire, fire that descend upon each one of the apostles. And then there is the audible phenomena of the speech. And Luke says in verse 4 of chapter 2, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. With other tongues. The word tongues there can only have two possible meanings. Let me give them to you again. Number one, it can mean the muscle of the tongue, which is behind your teeth. Or it can mean the language of a people. This is the only two possible meanings for what Luke gives us. Luke does not say that they started to speak in unknown tongues. There's a Greek word for unknown. Luke doesn't use it. He says other, heteros. It's a word that means another of the same kind. They began to speak a language which was another language. It was a language, but one that was different. And to repeat it, Luke does that three times to leave us no shadow of a doubt as to what he's talking about. He goes on to list in verse 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 all of the people from all of the Roman provinces who were in Jerusalem for this Feast of Pentecost. And Luke says in verse 6, 
that they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. A large crowd has gathered because of the visible and the audible phenomena of the rushing wind and the flames of fire. And each one of them hears him speak in his own language. Dialectos, from which we get our word dialect. Luke lists all of the people who were there. Verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own dialectos, our own dialect? And now in verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues. Same word as verse 4. Verse 4, it's language. Then Luke twice says it's dialect. Dialect. Verse 11, language. Any confusion as to what tongues are by this point? A language. Tongues are a language. Rather than calling them the gift of tongues, we should call them the gift of languages. It would be a literal translation. It's the ability to speak a language. Even to the dialect. A couple weeks ago, um, but before I tell that story, you, you notice when you run into somebody who was born in a different country, raised in a different country, who does not speak English as their mother tongue, you notice in talking to them that although they, they may speak English having learned that language growing up or later in life, that there is still a dialect, there's still an accent, there's still a way of speaking that they bring to the English language. Have you noticed that? Whether it's somebody whose native tongue is German, and learns to speak English, you can tell they're German. Whether it's Japanese, you can tell that they're Japanese. Just by hearing how it is that they speak the English language. Because of the different dialect, the different way of talking that they use. In this country, we have different dialects. We have a Texas dialect. We have a Southern dialect. We have a New England dialect, a New York dialect. We have a Midwest dialect. There's a Californian dialect, which is just a little bit different than the Northwest dialect. Even in our own country, amongst our own language, we have different dialects. A couple weeks ago, Deidre and I went over to Chad and Nikki's house for dessert, and they had some uh, friends there who were from Florida. Luke was his name. And we were having a good time. The ladies were in the front room, and time came for uh, them to serve ice cream. So Luke and Chad got up, went in the kitchen to serve ice cream, and Luke took out a big scoop of ice cream out of the pail and put it in the bowls and dished everybody up. And he grabbed one of the bowls, and he started to walk toward the living room. And he said, y'all want y'all's in there? I just stopped and, what? What did you say? I say, y'all want y'all's in there? I had to look to Chad to translate that. <laughs> he said, he just said, do you all want your alls, your ice creams? Y'all want your alls in there? You and I would say, would you like to eat your ice cream in the living room? <laughs> Different dialect. Listen, these apostles stand up on the day of Pentecost and they speak a language, not just a language, but a dialect. A dialect of a language. It is right to the T of pronunciation. Right to the detail of the accent and the way the words are formed. That's what amazes all these people. How is it that we hear these Galileans speaking the language in which we are born and the very dialect of the language? They've never learned it. They've never studied it. They didn't stand up and just hack their way through some pronunciation and get the words all wrong and accent the wrong syllables. They didn't do any of that. They stood up and in the dialect of the listener, they spoke fluently, having never learned, having never read, having never studied. The Spirit of God gave them a supernatural ability to speak a different language, even the dialect of that language. 
to the point where those listening thought to themselves, how is it that we hear them speaking our native tongue as if they grew up with us? That is the supernatural, spirit-given ability. It's a dialect. It's a language. Now, if the gift of tongues is a language, you would expect that every time we see the gift of tongues being used in the New Testament, that it would be just that. Wouldn't you expect that? Is that a reasonable conclusion to reach? Luke gives us no indication in this text that tongues is anything other than languages. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Now, last week I told you that Acts, that Acts mentions tongues in four chapters, 2, 8, 10, and 19. I was incorrect. Um, I was mistaken on that. Acts only mentions tongues in three chapters, 2, 10, and 19. It's not in Acts chapter 8. I was thinking of something different in Acts chapter 8. So it's only in Acts 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. So flip over to Acts chapter 10, and I'll set the stage. Cornelius, a Gentile, he's a God-fearing Gentile, is praying like he does every day. And he sees a vision in which an angel says to him, Cornelius, send for Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Cornelius does this. Then Luke takes us over to Peter. Peter is staying in Simon's house. He goes up on the, the rooftop to wait for dinner, and he sees that sheep, sheep come down out of heaven with all the animals. And God says, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, it's unclean. Kill and eat. No, it's unclean. Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, it's unclean. Lord, no thing unclean has ever touched these lips. And God wraps up the object lesson by saying, Peter, don't call something unclean that I have determined is clean. And Peter's thinking about that. These people show up from Cornelius' house. Peter, Cornelius, a Gentile, wants you to come to his house. And Peter's thinking to himself, a Gentile? As a Jew, I can't even set foot in a Gentile's house. Jews wouldn't even eat meat that had been cut by a Gentile. They hated Gentiles. Gentiles were worse than dogs. Gentile couldn't even be saved in a Jew's mind. But Peter thinks, well, I've had this vision. Spirit tells him, go with them. So Peter does. He shows up in Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, Cornelius, or Peter, once he arrives there, Cornelius says, here's what's happened. I saw the vision. It said to send for you. And so, what's the message that you have? Peter says in verse 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Right? This is a Gentile. God doesn't matter to him whether you're a Jew or Gentile. I guess salvation's offered on par whether you're Jew or Gentile. I don't think Peter's totally convinced. I think he's just kind of saying what he thinks God wants him to hear, or what God wants him to say. Peter goes on in verse 39 to begin to present the Gospel. We are witnesses of all the things He, that is Jesus, did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Verse 42, And He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the One who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the Gospel. They crucified Him. He rose. We witnessed it. We saw it. And now God has commissioned us to tell all people everywhere that Jesus Christ is appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. And the only way you will be able to stand His judgment is if you are in Him on the basis of faith. So you must believe in Him to have your sins forgiven. And while Peter is speaking, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter 
were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What amazed these Jews? That somebody got saved? No, people were getting saved every day in Jerusalem. Why were these Jews amazed? A Gentile got saved. you got to be kidding me. A Gentile got saved? Peter would never believe that. How did he know? Look at the next verse. Verse 46, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter said, Baptize them. I don't think that he was all too excited about the prospect of baptizing a Gentile. But there was something that convinced Peter that they had the Holy Spirit too. What was it? They spoke in tongues. Luke doesn't tell us that these tongues are anything different than what's in Acts chapter 2. doesn't specify that. It's languages. Same word for languages. They spoke in languages. Cornelius and those who got saved that day when the Holy Spirit came into them, the Spirit of God, in order to demonstrate to Peter that they were saved too, gave them the ability to speak in tongues just like Peter had had. And that convinced Peter. They are saved. How is it that the Spirit of our holy God could indwell a Gentile? I'd never believe that without seeing something that would convince me. So what does he see? Cornelius begins to speak in another language. That convinced Peter. That didn't set well with the rest of the apostles. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now when the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, that is the Jews, took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter's in hot water. But Peter goes on to explain the whole situation. He goes into Cornelius' vision. He goes into his vision. He goes into the him going to Cornelius' house and explains all of this. Down in verse 15, Peter says, and I began to, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. When was the beginning? Acts chapter 2. Peter says, what I saw Cornelius do was the exact same thing that happened to us in Acts chapter 2. Languages. And then Peter says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter just says, I couldn't help it. I just preached Christ to these guys and they got saved. I don't think it's what Peter wanted to have happen. But he says, who am I to stand in God's way if God decides to give them what? The same gift He gave us at the beginning. Acts chapter 2 is languages. Acts chapter 10 is what? Languages. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. This is the Apostle Paul. He's at Ephesus. He runs into a group of Old Testament Jews, disciples of John the Baptist. Acts 19, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And something there gives Paul the indication that these people were believing in something, but had not yet received the Spirit of God. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. The baptism of repentance. Not a baptism of identification with Christ. And they said into John's baptism, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon Him, the Holy Spirit came into them, 
and began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. About twelve men. Tongues. Same word used in Acts 2. The same word used in Acts 10. There's no reason anywhere in the book of Acts, in 2, 10, or in 19, to think that Luke has in mind a different phenomenon in chapter 19 than he does in chapter 2. He uses the same language. And that author has already gone to great lengths in chapter 2 to show us what tongues are. So every time it comes up, unless he's going to redefine or re-clarify it, we have to assume that Luke is detailing for us and describing for us the same phenomena that he described in Acts 2. And each of these accounts is just briefer. In Acts 2, he gives us all the details. Dialects, languages, it was tongues, the people there, they heard it. Acts 10, Peter says it was the same with Cornelius as it was in Acts 2. Acts 19, Luke just mentions these Old Testament saints who spoke in tongues. Briefly. Acts 2 is languages. Acts 10 is languages. Acts 19 is languages. It's all as a language. Now, I belabor this because modern-day charismatics will say, but Acts 2 was languages. Now, it's all changed. By the time we reach 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, the nature of tongues is different. Back in Acts 2, it was languages. Over in Corinthians, it is ecstatic speech which edifies the self and gives me a prayer language and brings me into communion with God. The ironic thing is that Acts 19 is about the same time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Notice what it says while Apollos was in Corinth. Paul was passing through Ephesus. While he was in Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. At that time, Luke tells us the gift of tongues when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is the same as it was back in Acts chapter 2. Isn't it wonderful how Scripture explains itself? Acts 2, 10, 19, languages. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he's speaking of languages. It is the ability to speak a foreign language, having never learned it, having never studied it, and to do it fluently in the very dialect of the people who hear it. Did you hear Gordon this morning? Yeah. You would never know that he was speaking in anything other than the very dialect. I mean, that sounded Manhui to me. And I've never heard anybody else speak Manhui but Gordon. It's fluent. He did not get that gift to do that sovereignly, spiritually. He worked hard year after year after year after year to learn that language. In the New Testament, as a sign, and we're going to look at this in a second, those apostles and those people who had that gift spoke fluently. Perfect language. Having never studied it, having never learned it. That is the nature of the New Testament gift of tongues. That is what Luke is going to pains to explain to us. Now, something else I want you to notice from the book of Acts. Notice how rare tongues is. When you, By the time we had gone from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 19, we've covered a 25-year period of history. It's 25 years between Acts 2 and Acts 19. Over the course of the 30-year period in the early church, Luke mentions tongues three times, each with a specific purpose that we'll deal with when we get to those texts. In Acts chapter 2, it's Jews. In Acts chapter 10, it's Gentiles. And in Acts chapters 19, it is Old Testament believers. These little remnant of Old Testament saints left over from John the Baptist's baptism. Those are the only three times he mentions it. You hardly get the feeling that tongues was the everyday occurrence of every believer in the church. In Acts chapter 2, when those 3,000 people got saved, Luke doesn't say that all those people spoke in tongues. 
Luke doesn't say that Lydia spoke in tongues when she got saved or that Timothy spoke in tongues when he got saved. Luke doesn't even tell us that the Apostle Paul spoke in tongues at his salvation. It's just rare. And it's not only rare in the book of Acts over the course of these 30 years, it's rare in the rest of the New Testament. Outside of Acts, only one other book, 1 Corinthians, and this is outside of a brief reference in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, there's only one other book that deals with the subject of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, three chapters, the Apostle spends correcting the abuses of the Corinthian congregation. He writes to the Ephesians, talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 4, no mention of tongues. Writes to the Romans, talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, no mention of tongues. Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, two epistles to Timothy, one epistle to Titus, one epistle to Philemon, two epistles to the Thessalonians, a second one to the church in Corinth, no mention of tongues. I read through my New Testament and listening to the modern day tongues advocates, you'd expect to see tongues mentioned on every page in every chapter, but it's not. It's very, very rare. And it hardly justifies the preoccupation that some Christians spend on it today. What's the nature of the gift of tongues? It's languages. Second question that we have to answer. Man, I wish I had another half hour. Second question that I have to answer is the question, what was the purpose of the New Testament gift of tongues? Why was it given? Why was tongues given? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is the only place in all of the Bible where we're told what the purpose of tongues are. Only place in all the New Testament where we're given by an inspired apostle the purpose of the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14. Let me set the stage a little bit and give you some context. Chapter 12 deals with tongues in a very general fashion as to who gives the gifts and who how the gifts are supposed to operate within the church. Chapter 13 deals with the subject of love because what was really missing in the Corinthian congregation was love. They were all standing up trying to outdo each other and show off their giftedness, some of them even fabricating the gift in order to look spiritual and draw attention and outdo their brother. Chapter 14, Paul zeroes in on the gift of tongues specifically. Chapter 14. And in there, the Apostle Paul basically, let me give you a three-part division for chapter 14. Verses 1 through 19 is the place of tongues. Paul argues this. It's an inferior gift. It's not superior to the other gifts. It's inferior to the other gifts. It's inferior to prophecy because prophecy edifies the church. Proclaiming the truth of God in the native tongue of the hearers edifies. You stand up in a tongue and you start speaking Monhui, whatever Gordon said, it didn't edify me. I have no clue what he said. Didn't edify me in the least. Unless there's an interpreter who knows Monhui who stands up and says, here's what he said. Then that edifies me. But tongues used in the church is inferior. It's the bottom of the scale. Far better, Paul says in verse 19, to speak five words with my mind to be understood than 10,000 words in some ecstatic babble, a tongue. Verses 20 and 21 and 22, Paul gives us the purpose of tongues. The rest of the chapter, he details all of the qualifications for the practice of tongues in the Corinthian assembly. The purpose of tongues, verse 20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. He's asking us this, will you just grow up in your thinking a little bit? Track with me for a second, would you? Lay aside all the emotion and track with me when we understand what the gift of tongues was intended to do. Verse 21, in the law it is written, quote, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. Paul, Isaiah says, and Paul's quoting Isaiah, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. 
And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, now Paul draws a conclusion from his quotation, and he says, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. The only place in all of the New Testament we were told what the purpose of tongues is, it's this. Tongues are for a sign, not to believers. Tongues are for a sign to unbelievers. Now he quotes Isaiah. In order to understand why Paul draws this conclusion, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 28. And here's the gist of it. Isaiah had been telling these people in his day, the southern kingdom of Judah, you disbelieve, you will not repent, and because you will not repent, God is going to bring a nation from afar against you, and they will destroy you. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. He made it simple. He spoke to them in children's language. He did everything he could so that everybody could understand, everybody could hear, everybody could repent, and they wouldn't listen. Finally, Isaiah 28. God says, in essence, since you have not listened to my prophet, when I have spoken to you in your own language, I am going to speak to this people, to the nation of Judah, in a language that they will not understand. Through the lips of foreigners. What does that mean? Who is going to invade? Babylon. You're not going to listen to my prophet? I'm going to bring another nation against you and you're going to hear people on your land speaking a language you don't understand. To every Jew, that was a sign of judgment. When a Jew standing in Palestine heard a foreign language spoken on his land, he knew one thing. They'd been conquered. They were under somebody's dominion. And that's exactly what God did. He brought the Chaldeans against them. This was a concept that was familiar to the Jews. Moses said in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verses 47 through 49, he said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you do not understand. That was God's promise of judgment. If you will not repent, and if you turn from me, and you will not honor me, I will bring a nation against you. And one of the signs of judgment, one of the symbols of judgment, will be the fact that you will hear languages you do not understand. So those Jews in Jeremiah's day, standing around in the streets of Jerusalem, here in Chaldean. And they knew one thing. Moses warned us about it. Isaiah warned us about it. And Jeremiah warned us about it. Judgment. When a Jew heard a foreign tongue spoke on his land, it was judgment. That's what it meant to the Jews. That was Isaiah's point. That was Moses' point. And that was Jeremiah's point. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15, he said, I'm bringing a nation against you from afar. It's an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know. Judgment. So Paul quotes Isaiah. Tongues are for a sign. A sign of what? A sign of judgment. To who? To Jews or to Gentiles or to both? Well, Isaiah says, I'm going to speak to this people, right? Who's that? Jews. Tongues are for a sign. They point to something that is coming. What is it that the sign points to? The quotation from Isaiah only leaves us one conclusion. A judgment that is coming. That's what the tongues indicated. A judgment that is coming. And so they heard the languages. They understood judgment. They heard these people speaking these foreign tongues. They thought of Isaiah. And in Acts chapter 2, what do you see? You see all of the devout Jews who are in Jerusalem saying, what could this mean? Others mocked, saying they're full of wine. But the devout Jews who knew the Old Testament Scriptures said what? What could this mean? Peter said, I'll tell you what it means. You crucified the Lord of glory. You hung Him on a cross. God raised Him from the dead and He's going to be your judge someday. You better repent. Most people repented. 3,000 people got saved that day not because Peter was an articulate speaker, 
3,000 people got saved that day because they saw the sign. They understood judgment is coming. And Peter explained to them what the sign meant. You crucified Christ. And if you think the people in Isaiah's day had a reason to be scared of coming judgment, how much more you, having rejected the Lord of glory and crucified your Messiah? You better repent today or God's going to bring judgment on you. Those people came forward in droves. 3,000 people got saved that day. Why? Because all those Jews understood. We're hearing these foreign tongues on our soil. We know from Jeremiah, Moses, and Isaiah, that means judgment. Now the question is, has the judgment come? And when did the judgment come? Were they judged? 70 A.D.? Jesus said as He approached Jerusalem, if you had only known this day what it is that makes for peace, even you the things which make for peace, but now... These things have been hidden for your eyes, for the day will come when upon you, upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Jesus spoke of a judgment that was going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. Why is that? Because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. The Messiah was there and they rejected Him. And Jesus said, because you have rejected Me, there is a judgment coming. And it came in 70 A.D. When Titus the Roman general came into Jerusalem, he sacked the whole city, burned everything, tore down the temple, looted the city, killed over a million Jews and took thousands of other captive. That was the judgment. Jesus said, because you've rejected Me, there's a judgment coming. Tongues are for a sign to unbelieving Jews Of what? Judgment. When did the judgment happen? 70 A.D. Now track with me just for a second as we wrap this up. If the only place in the New Testament where we're told what the gift of tongues is, we're told that it's a sign to unbelieving Jews. There's no indication in any text that tongues has any other purpose other than that one. That's the only place where we're given the purpose. If that judgment has come, what purpose is there for that gift today? Any at all? You get on I-90 and you start heading west towards Seattle, you'll notice something. Once you get on the other side of Spokane, you'll notice mileage signs for Moses Lake. Moses Lake, 120 miles, and you'll travel a little bit further. Moses Lake, 90 miles, and you travel a little bit further. Moses Lake, 50 miles, and you go a little bit further. Moses Lake, 10 miles. Once you get to Moses Lake, do you see any more road signs for Moses Lake telling you how far it is to Moses Lake? Do you see any more signs once you reach Moses Lake? Why not? They're unnecessary. You don't need signs pointing to Moses Lake anymore. You've arrived and passed Moses Lake. It's the same with the gift of tongues. They pointed to a judgment that's already come. They have fulfilled their purpose. And they are no more. What was tongues? It was languages. What was the purpose of it? It was given as a sign to unbelieving Jews of the judgment that was to come upon them. That judgment came and went in 70 A.D. And you know what you see happening for 1,800 years of church history? No tongues. The only tongues present are within heretical groups like the Montanists. And we'll cover that next week. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.